Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by the playwright Lee Blessing. Lee has a number of shows to his credit, notably on Broadway and in London's West End, A Walk in the Woods, off-Broadway shows like Thief River and Cobb, and currently running here in New York for the next couple of weeks at least, a show which is very interesting called uh, Going to St. Ives. And I don't want to give away the punchline of this show because it's a complicated show, but essentially it's about two women who meet for the first time. One is a white woman who's a British eye surgeon, a world-renowned eye surgeon living in this little town called St. Ives in England. The other is the mother of an African dictator, an Idi Amin sort of a dictator, and she needs eye surgery, and the two women meet in this manner. That's absolutely correct. And that's the whole show in a nutshell. Yes. <laughs> but then it goes... They make this, uh, that's about it, yeah. But it goes quite far from there. We yes, won't yeah. give away the twist, but how did you come to write uh, Going to St. Ives? Well, you know, it's... it's um, it, 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 really, the way it, it began, uh, oddly enough, I had a show at uh, the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center uh, years ago, and uh, a play called uh, A Walk in the Woods, a play that later played on Broadway. Uh, and it had a man who was in his 50s and, and another man who was in, you know, slightly younger and, and they were an American and Soviet negotiator. Uh, went very well, obviously. And, um, but while I was up there, there were two actresses who, uh, who said one day, and they were about the same ages as these actors, they said, you should write a play like this for women sometime. And so I said, well, you know, I'm going to get right on that. Uh, and 10 years later, I, uh, <laughs> I, I started this play. Uh, so, um, but what was interesting was in, in trying to write another play that was two people that um, dealt with the geopolitical issues. Um, uh, but, you know, these were women. I, um, I, I sort of took a different tack, you know, and I, and I sort of uh, did not allow them to be people who were in government, for example, uh, as, as the men in, in A Walk in the Woods are. Um, they, they, uh, the one is the mother of the leader of a country and, and, a, and a rather monstrous leader at that. Uh, the other one doesn't want anything to do with politics at all. Uh, so it, it, it instantly became a very different kind of play and the themes in it became very different. Um, uh, in the case of both women, there's a big issue about their, their sons, uh, you know, um, uh, life and death issues about their sons. So um, it, it quickly became a play very much about motherhood, about the theme of, um, you know, what it is to be a mother, what it is to lose a son, what it is to contemplate losing a son. Um, and uh, and that, um, that became a large part of the play. And also the play is a, mur uh, a murder uh, suspense story. Uh, so uh, it's uh, you know that w that differentiated it a great deal from Walking the Woods as well. It's worth noting that you mentioned it took you ten years from the time of Walking the Woods. That though this show is just being seen in New York now, even going to St. Ives has been almost ten years since you first wrote it. Yeah, um, um, when I had a, a Walk in the Woods at the O'Neill that year was 1986, and 10 years later I had this play at the O'Neill. Uh, so we we, we uh, workshopped it there. And this has time. been seen in a number. There have been a number of productions of this around yeah, the country. Yeah, you know, this is a, uh, a play that had a funny production history for me. After the, uh, uh, right away after the O'Neill, it was world premiered at a contemporary theater in Seattle, Washington, um, and then it was stage read down at uh, um, uh, in Los Angeles. Um, and shortly after that, it was optioned uh, for about three years. Optioned for, for commercial theater production for Broadway, or for film? For Broadway and oh. for film and all of these things, you know. And, and, and sort of 
went on and on and on and on. It was like the Energizer Bunny, you know, and uh, I, I made a lot of money out of it. I made more money out of it than the plays that were being produced, <laughs> you know, in, in various <laughs> regional situations. Um, but, you know, I had no, you know, I, I had taken the money in a sense. And so I, you know, I had to sit back and let the producers do what they wanted to do. And uh, ultimately, they, they didn't end up doing very much with it. Um, um, they did get the show produced in 2000 at La Jolla Playhouse. Um, uh, they were involved in that production. Uh, so, uh, but after that, their options lapsed, and uh, so it was done at La Jolla Playhouse. It's been done at uh, two or three smaller uh, resident theaters around the country, um, and that's been been about it. And now at primary stages mm-hmm. here in New York, in each of these productions, and given the lifespan of the play, have you gone back to work on it each time, or is it something that you really set? At some point in the past, and now you're just seeing different productions of it. Well, um, um, I, I, I wrote a great, de- you know, I rewrote it a great deal o- over those years and, and, and through those productions. Um, but I have a personal rule that once a, a play is published, I, I won't rewrite it anymore. Basically, um, it's just, uh, you know, if, if if I were to go down that road, I would never write the next play. So, it's not that I, f- I, I always find every, you know, the play that I publish perfect and uh, incapable of change, but um, uh, I really have to draw the line someplace, and that's, and that's where I do. Of course, this show, while it has certain political ramifications to it, it's really timeless in the sense that it's a character study of these two women. Mm-hmm. And I guess, in a sense, the, the English woman is really finding out things about herself that she may not even have considered before. But in this mm-hmm. relationship, this – I hesitate to use the word friendship because it's not so much a friendship as a – interrelationship between these two women, mm-hmm. uh, the one being the patient, the other being the doctor, but they become friendly, if not friends. That's really more the, the universal uh, overlying uh, theme to it than the, than the actual political, I would, I would think. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's interesting to an extent, too, in A Walk in the Woods, you know, it, it is about a personal relationship as well as the, uh, the uh, arms negotiations between the Soviet Union, the then Soviet Union and the United States. But whereas, um, um, you know, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, worked very hard to destroy my career by ending the Soviet Union you know, <laughs> uh, and thus getting rid of the arms race, um, um, this is a play uh, which, like a couple of other my plays, uh, is about a problem that's so chronic and so long-running, that is, the relationship of the developed world to the undeveloped world, um, um, that uh, this is a play that, that, that really doesn't go out of style, really can't. And as you also pointed out before, it's really about motherhood and the relationship of mothers to their sons. We never see the sons in the mm-hmm. show. It's only the two women that we see on stage, although there are right. frequent references to the sons in the case of the doctor, the husband, or you mm-hmm. know, the, 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 the African dictator, the son of the other woman, mm-hmm. uh, and even their staffs are referred to but never seen on stage. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me about uh, going to St. Ives because this is um, – you know, when I wrote it, there were uh, – uh, you know, it was, it was around the time of the uh, genocidal killings in Rwanda. Mm. Um, now when it's being um, – getting its New York premiere, it's around the time of the genocidal killings in Darfur. You know, uh, things don't change that much in terms of how um, the developed world responds to what goes on uh, at times in Africa. Now, you mentioned that A Walk in the Woods was a two-man show and this, of course, going to St. Ives, a two-woman show. And you wanted to, in some manner at least, um, pattern going to St. Ives on your earlier success with A Walk in the Woods. Did you ever consider expanding it to more than just a two-person show, bringing some mm-hmm. of these other characters in? Which would have sort of been inevitable, I guess, if, if you had done it as a screenplay. 
Well, and I have done it as a screenplay. There was an oh. option for that too. <laughs> so yes, and suddenly everybody got you know everybody's uh, that's mentioned. All the offstage characters are, are are part of the screenplay, um, and that you know it's, it's it's simply a different medium, and so it becomes a different beast, and you do it in a different way. For stage, you know, uh, sort of my rule of thumb is you you know no play should have any more characters in it than it absolutely needs to have, because plays uh, are are a, uh, need to be a very efficient sort of uh, genre. You know, you, you, when you're sitting there watching things, you don't want extraneous information, extraneous characters, redundant information because your time's too precious, you know. So um, uh, this, because I could do this as a two-person play, um, um, I, I felt I needed to. Now, with a two-person play, we sit there for better than two hours watching these two women portray these characters it's on stage. It's actually just slightly under two Just slightly under two? It only seemed like a little bit. <laughs> no, seriously, the, the play moves very nicely. Um, do you, as the writer, have any involvement with the casting of the two actresses who play the roles because they're so important to interpreting your characters? Oh, sure. You know, each each uh, actor is half your cast. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, right. it's a huge proportion of, of, of you know, what the show is going to re- rely on. So, yes, uh, the theater, uh, the casting agent, uh, the director of the play, Maria Myleaf, um, uh, and I uh, all um, were in, uh, you know, conference about who uh, we wanted to offer the roles to, who we might want to have come in and read for roles. And, and we, we were all – it was a team uh, effort, as it usually is in these situations. You mentioned earlier uh, the O'Neill Theater Center, and uh, at my last reckoning, you are the playwright who has had their work more plays worked on at the O'Neill than any other. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little about what that process of development is for you? Because you've done it so frequently, and some people think of play development in some cases as something that only a younger writer wants or needs, and obviously you've used that as a tool in your work now for about 20 years. Um, yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I've actually had uh, eight plays up there uh, over the last 20 years, and, and, and that is you know, um, more than anyone else. The, um, you know, and I've worked at other places. Last summer I had a play at uh, Play Labs in, in uh, Minneapolis. And you've also worked at the Playwright Center through the Playwright Center in Minneapolis mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so how does that work for you? What do you, what do you get out of, of working on shows at that level? It, it helps me tremendously. Um, the, 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 the utility of a workshop is, you know, once you – as you write a play, uh, what you're doing, uh, whether you want to be doing it or not, I mean, inevitably, you are making the play work for you. You know, the way – this particular synapses in your brain are wired. The way you write it works perfectly for, but you're only one person. Everybody's brain works just a little bit differently. We are, all have a subjective re- response to any work of art. Um, and – what you discover in a workshop is, you know, you get into the mouths of actors. Uh, you start hearing how it's hitting them when they read these words. What, you know, what do you get back? Uh, and and then, you know, when they do the reading, you you get to watch an audience. You get to see whether that audience is responding as you want them to. You know, are the are the serious points landing? Do they laugh? You know, at the right time. Um, and uh, what you discover is sometimes yes, sometimes no. You know, there are places in a play that can that can work better. And you and uh, so a lot of playwriting is trial and error. Um, and and every playwright needs to find that place where they're they're working not just alone with a, a manuscript, but uh, with actors, with a director, and most most importantly with an audience, because you're writing the play for an audience. You know, you're writing the play to do something to the spectators who have never seen it before and come in once. You know. Uh, so most writers I know try to find some situation where they can workshop, uh, either formally or informally, what, you know, what they're writing. Um, 
God, I was at Ojai two years ago, and and um, I've done uh, New River Dramatists, you know, two years ago as well. And, and you know, I, I I go far and wide. I've gone to London the last uh, two years actually, and done informal readings there with a small theater group. So uh, um, it's. Wherever I can go find, you know, uh, people who really want to work on a play like this with me, it's, it's very helpful. And since you also teach playwriting, I mm-hmm. assume that's something you're recommending to the students? Oh, yeah. I mean, it it, it, uh, it happens uh, to some degree in every MFA program. I, I run the graduate playwriting program at Mason Gross School of the Arts, Rutgers University. Um, and there, uh, we uh, we actually produce one act by these students. You know, we read them in class. They work on them, and in, in, um, um, you know, at the end of the year, they do one act, and then at the end, end of the, their third year, they do a full length uh, play on the main stage. So um, they definitely get their plays worked on, and they get an audience, and they get to see the degree to which that play has been effective. Do they then see your productions? Like, have your students gone to see going to St. Ives? Do you know? Yeah, I've been lucky. I've had a few productions recently, in, you know, locally. Uh-huh. So I, uh, the, uh, we went down to see a production of Going to St. Ives in uh, Philadelphia at the mm-hmm. Interact Theater last fall. Um, um, we um, what else? Or, no, that was a year ago. Uh, a, a play of, uh, of mine called Whores was done at Interact in Philadelphia. Um, that was last fall. And then and then uh, it's been done in a co-production in New Jersey in two small theaters in New Jersey. So we, we truck out there whenever we can. I get, they can get them to see. see it must be show. interesting as the, as the teacher critiquing the students' plays. Do they then critique your work? They're very nice about my work because I have the power of the grade. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> then after they pass the course, mm-hmm, they come back mm-hmm. and say, well, professor. <laughs> and they've been coming in to see this production as well. Okay. You know, uh, They're not required to, but they, um, uh, I think they actually uh, sort of enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, wh- where do you get your inspiration for shows? In other words, subject matter topics, do you just dream these up? Do people suggest them? How, how did you get interested in doing either going to St. Ives or Walk in the Woods or any of your other work? Well, uh, Walk in the Woods was my first political play. I thought, you know, it would be interesting to try to take a page one story that uh, had everyone, um, um, you know, uh, depressed and, and, and uh, that we really didn't know what we could do about, you know, and in, the, in that case, arms negotiations, um, nuclear arms negotiations, and, 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 and see what I could do in, in, in a dramatic form with it. And this one, you know, came out of that sort of age-old question, when you have tyrants and, and – we still do, and, and you know, I mean, history is uh, um, replete with uh, examples. Um, you know, from Caligula to um, Hitler to Pol Pot to Idi Amin to you know all sorts of people, um, especially the worst ones, the ones that, that kill people wholesale. You know, um, you know, when you have someone like that, you always wonder. We we always ask ourselves, why didn't somebody close to this guy take him out? You know, and and of course, it almost never happens. Um, so I was sort of fascinated with the psychology of that. And then I thought, well, who's closer to somebody like that than a mother? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and um, in this play, um, the um, uh, African uh, woman, uh, May, and Kame, uh, has, has that dilemma. You know, she doesn't approve of what her son's doing. She contemplates killing him. And, um, um, you know, it's, it's – well, that, you know, uh, creates an enormous uh, uh, dilemma uh, for her. And, um, and and the play uh, sort of um, uses that as its core. Well, it's interesting you say that, that, that Walk in the Woods was your first political play because then it seemed for a period you were writing a number of plays that were very topical. Um, Two Rooms, I believe, followed that, which dealt with terrorism. Mm-hmm. And uh, Patient A, which was indeed – Patient A was a commission, I believe. That was a commission, Specifically yeah. to write about a story – 
Related uh, to uh, HIV. Yeah. HIV. Yeah. So, so you had this this political period, and did you was that a time where you started saying to yourself, "I want to look at these issues per se"? Because now, in looking at your more recent work, it seems to have come out of an explicitly political perspective and and more back into the human stories. It really depends. It depends on the the situation. I've I've always written plays that are not much like each other in general. You know, I suppose you can sort of say, well, there's plays that are more political and plays that seem to be more about families and plays that seem to be about sports or something. Um, But um, often the plays are very different from each other. I had another commission, uh, a play called Horse, which uh, came out of a uh, a legal case about – that covered two – uh, El Salvadoran generals uh, who had who had you know run this El Salvadoran military during the 1980s when there were wholesale murders by the military of civilians, um, and uh, the three nuns and the Catholic lay worker from North America were all murdered, uh, raped and murdered uh, by soldiers and uh, under these men's command. Uh, so so. Um, someone said, well, you know, there's going to be a trial. There was a civil suit in Florida. These men had moved to the United States at the invitation of our State Department. And uh, they've lived in retirement there ever since with their families. Um, and, the, and they were sued by the survivors of those, those dead nuns um, unsuccessfully. Hmm. And in fact, uh, the last judgment against them was just thrown out by an Atlanta court. And so these men are, are pretty much home here with us, na- our neighbors, Scott Free. Hmm. So, they, you know, uh, Florida Stage thought that might be an intriguing uh, idea for a play. So uh, I, I wrote a play I'm really quite proud of called Horse. Wait, but you, and you did not take, I would say, a straightforward approach to that. There was a no. certain amount of, of, I don't know whether you call it absurdism or surrealism, um, because it was not a clear-cut, let's look at this case. It was... Yeah, it, you know, I, I, I took these two generals and I said I didn't really want to write about them specifically. So I wrote about a fictional, a fictionalized general. He's clearly from Central America. He's clearly, you know, had a, a similar history and uh, there seemed to be, you know, but it's all taking place in his mind. So it, it, it's a um, um, uh, sort of free form. He can't remember the name of the country he came from. Because why would he want to? Um, he can't remember his own name. He's having lots of trouble. <laughs> but um, um, it, it's um, – and then I, I do use um, um, actors as these um, uh, nuns, but they're also whores. They're also uh, um, dance instructors. They're his family. They're lawyers. You know, they do every other role in the play. You were, you were born in Minneapolis mm-hmm. and raised in the Midwest, went to school in the Midwest. What, if any, influence do you think your upbringing, your regionality has Mm -hmm. had on your work? In other words, um, has this had any any profound effect, do you think, or is that... Oh, sure. You know, I've set a a number of plays uh, in Minnesota or with Midwestern characters, Uh you know, and and, um, it's uh, it's meant a lot to me. I I loved uh, where I grew up. I... um, uh, I think as I developed as a playwright in, in the um, 1960s, um, I wasn't very attracted to American playwriting. Uh, I found – you know, I was excited by the Grove Press playwrights, the Beckett, the Inesco, Genet, uh, you know, Pinter. Um, so I immediately tried writing like them and um, um, succeeded in writing incredibly bad plays. So hmm. um, when I went to graduate school, I went to University of Iowa. Um, the writer's workshop there and I worked with a fellow named Oscar Brownstein who uh, later taught at Yale. Um, and he you know, he kind of looked at me and said, you know, these plays you write, you know, these, these playwrights you like and that you're trying to emulate, um, um, 
I keep wondering if you, in fact, you know, uh, uh, were the product of uh, a war-ravaged uh, World War II, you know, uh, and, and, and thus an existentialist uh, of a certain age. And, and then when I look at you, you don't seem to be. You seem to be this Midwestern person from, from you know. Um, and, uh, and, and he he got me more interested again in, in uh, the work of Tennessee Williams and William Inge and, and, and people like that, people who came from my region, people who, you know, experienced American history, you know, and um, – when I, you know, I found that to be very liberating. You know, he said, you know, you can be who you are and write from your own background and it can still be important. And uh, so I think that uh, um, that was that was really a um, – um, when I, I started to learn how to write plays um, uh, and really what to write plays about. I wrote a play early – an early play that I uh, – still one of my favorites called uh, Independence about a family of women in northeastern Iowa and that's all it is, you know. And uh, – but it's uh, – it obviously tends to speak about a great deal more than that. And uh, I think it was the first play I ever had at the O'Neill, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, and, and since then, a recent play I wrote was uh, Thief River, which is about a 50-year-old, a 50-year um, uh, gay love story, basically, uh, that takes place in northwestern Minnesota in a rural area. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, I've, I've gone back to that, uh, you know, that, that my origins uh, a great deal. Well, your work is so eclectic and you, you said yourself, you know, earlier that, that there's not necessarily a, it's any single topics that you're pursuing. If we asked you, what would you say is the common thread through the Lee Blessing plays? <laughs> or is other there, than Lee Blessing himself. Lee, Lee Blessing wrote them. Yeah. Uh, or, uh, or is there one other than mm, Lee Blessing writing it? Um, Oh, I think you know if 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 you look hard enough, you certainly see um, um, aspects of my style that that are recognizable in in all these plays. Um, uh, con- concerns and just a general sense, a general view of humanity, uh, an exploration of, of 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 my own psyche, my you know, which is what all writers ultimately do, um, uh, starts to form a recognizable pattern, I suppose, you know. And you've been enormously prolific. I read that you you said at one point that you were writing a play a year, which for most playwrights is a tremendous pace, and that recently you find yourself writing two a year. Yeah, since I moved to New York. Um, Since the pace was pretty remarkable to begin with, what do you think stepped up the pace? Um, I, I think when I'm, um, I had been living in LA doing a, a bit more television and film, uh, which I found only moderately satisfactory. It, was, it, was, it, it paid better, but it wasn't terribly fun to do, because most of the things you work on never shoot or air anyway. You know, they, they never really, they never really get to a screen. Um, and after a while, you, you start to feel uh, very anonymous. Um, so I, I moved to New York uh, in about 2000. I had been living most of my career in Minneapolis, actually. So, I, so this, this was the first time I'd lived permanently in New York. Uh, at the same time, I got this job uh, at, at Rutgers uh, teaching, which meant that I could, in a sense, sort of let the film and television go for a little bit. Um, and so for the last few years, I've really the writing's uh, just been concentrated in playwriting. Now, when you're creating a work, Let's say there are two major elements. There's the plot and there are the characters. Do they work hand in hand or do you concentrate on one before the other? It's kind of like asking a songwriter, do you write the the lyrics first or the melody first? (laughs) For you as a playwright, is it the plot that gets you? Is it the characters that get you? Is it the Mm -hmm. combination of the two, putting them together? I think for me the the plot is the characters Um, because ultimately what what a play moves along on, what what, uh, pulls us through a play is watching conflict. Um, 
and 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 I think a lot of young playwrights don't realize that they, uh, this entirely, and and so they seem to, they start a play when they're satisfied they have an interesting premise uh, that coalesces around a uh, a significant problem. Um, but plays aren't really about problems; they're about solutions. And what we watch are characters who encounter a problem come up with their own solutions and find that those solutions are in competition with each other. And the conflict we watch, I think anyway, uh, has to do with the conflict between characters each trying to push his or her own, own solution in any situation. Uh, and that's going to lead me to where the, you know, I need to go vis-a-vis -vis the plot uh, for the most part. So I don't, I, I don't differentiate between the two. You know, the one is born of the other. So in the case of going to St. Ives where these – at least the one woman has well, – actually, both of them really have a dilemma that they're facing. The one mm -hmm. has a dilemma when she walks in to the other woman's residence and then presents a dilemma to the other woman. So they both end up with a dilemma. Um, did that develop as you were developing the whole – or was that the, the, mm -hmm. central, the central issue that you were looking at to begin with? Yeah, I, I think it's important uh, you know, uh, uh, for, for your listenership to, to realize that we're sort of talking around a couple of points which are actually surprises in the course yeah, because of the play. Yeah, because we don't want to give them away. Right. And so uh, – but yes, each, each woman has a significant uh, problem at the top of this play. Um, the English woman has something she needs from the African woman. Uh, it's a, a big favor she needs to ask. The African woman has a big price that you know she'll do the favor. We discover finally, uh, but uh, but she has her own terms. And uh, so, so it really, especially in the first act, is a play about two people deciding whether they're willing to pay the price the other one is going to exact uh, for cooperation. And um, um, and in the second act, we really see the uh, the result of the uh, of. of you know what the work of the first act was. You know, um, so uh, yes, yeah, so so not to ruin anybody who ha might have the chance coming to see the show uh, here or somewhere else. Um, um, it you know, that is sort of the, the the dynamic of the play. That's that's how, uh, what we what we watch from the very beginning. Yeah, the, the reason we're beating around the bush is it's kind of like a Hitchcock movie. You know mm -hmm. that it's going to be a spellbound. You know it's going to be a thriller in one way or another. You don't know quite where that movie is going to go. The same thing yeah. with, with with your work. Yeah, especially well, in the first act, suspense is really yeah. It's important. worth saying that it's it's one of the few times I can think of that I've been in the theater recently where there's a plot development and the audience gasps. Mm -hmm. when, yes. when statements yeah. are made. And, of course, that's exciting, so we don't want to spoil that. You, you commented earlier about the fact about listening to audiences. And, of course, your work is being done constantly around the country in so many different places. Do you find response to your work varying depending on where it's done? Obviously, the productions themselves are different, so that's a part of it. But are there different responses depending on what part of the country you're in? Um. No, you know, not not markedly. I think that there are places in the country that, and this is probably true for every playwright, that tend to do my plays more than other places in the country. You know, and I don't know why that is. You know, if, if that's controlled by uh, of, of the, the local critical milieu, uh, or the, you know, whoever happens to control the, the, the theaters in a particular market, or, or you know, but um, uh, there are just for some reason parts of the country that tend to do do my where, where are you hot <laughs> <laughs> so the twin cities uh, the, the the northwest uh, southern california florida seem all, all you know but things that you know like, things could punch up a little bit in boston i think you know <laughs> well it's worth mentioning that philadelphia we, and washington dc very good lately very good yeah. good markets for you yeah. um you have 
two upcoming shows, uh, mm-hmm. premieres, one in uh, La Jolla, California mm-hmm. and one at the Guthrie in Minneapolis. Right. Do you want to tell us about those plays? Because oh, they're, sure. again, remarkably different pieces. Yeah. Um, um, actually, um, I wrote them at the same time. Um, I, I should a- say they seem like remarkably different pieces <laughs> because I haven't seen them. Well, um, to take the, the the second one first, uh, the Scottish play uh, was a commission, and uh, it's a play um, that is ten characters. It's a comedy, um, and it is uh, basically about it's fairly it's a fairly you know broad comedy um, um, about the most unfortunate, the most cursed uh, contemporary historic, uh, most cursed uh, production of uh, the Scottish play. What, what theater people like to call the Scottish play, we're not in a theater, so I'll name it, uh, Macbeth, Shakespeare's um, famous tragedy, is uh, widely in, in theater circles thought of as the most cursed play in the repertoire. Um, and there are many, many stories about uh, actors doing it and passing away, dying on stage, uh, that sort of thing. And I, hen- hence the name is never mentioned in a theater. So yes, yes. <laughs> we just right. don't mention it in the theater. We, we call it the Scottish play. And so I thought, well, it would be very interesting to, to uh, find uh, uh, out just what the worst possible production would look like. Uh, so um, I've created a little fictional theater, um, a Shakespearean festival theater in Upper Michigan called the Northernmost Shakespeare Festival. Uh, and they uh, they they're going through their own private hell, trying to uh, trying to produce uh, Macbeth. And worth noting, the second time you've riffed on a Shakespeare play in your in your yes, work. I wrote a play called Fortinbras, which was a comic sequel to Hamlet because that was we all realized that was so necessary. And despite the fact that everybody was dead, they, yeah. they all came back. No, well, they do come back. You know, uh, Shakespeare's play began uh, had only one ghost in mind, starts with six, and just builds from there. So, in your play, the Scottish play, do you mm-hmm. ever mention that word Macbeth? Oh, yes. Yes, it gets mentioned. Uh, it's allowed and, to be said on stage if you're performing it. You're mm-hmm. just not allowed to say it it's not off backstage. stage. No. Yeah, there are a lot of good, good theater superstitions. You can't whistle in the theater because uh, the people who worked in the flies used to signal each other with whistles. And so an actor whistling might get a sandbag dropped on his mm-hmm. head by accident, you know. Um, so, I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, useful useful ones. But Macbeth just kind of – because it's a, a sort of a dark, smoky, dangerous play with witches in it, um, you know, people were prone. You know, perhaps it's had no more, you know, terrible events occur in its production history in 400 years than, you know um, – um, oh, Troilus and Cressida or, or, or um, um, you know, Much Ado About Nothing. But um, because of its, its, its whole ap- ambience, you know, we, we, we tend to worry about that one. Uh, at the same time I was writing that, um, uh, you know, and, and, and thinking in a very, you know, broad comic terms, one morning I woke up and I had a different idea in my head, uh, which was, uh, what, you know, what if I wrote a play about a couple, middle-aged couple, who uh, wake up one day in a beautiful house um, out in the country and have no idea who each other are and have no idea who they themselves are. Um, and so that was that was really the whole premise and I thought, well, that would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a three-person play for you know the, this couple and a, a young woman that they're not quite sure. They don't know, is she our daughter? Are we a couple? They really don't know. Um, and so we uh, – it's a play in five scenes in which this uh, th- this dilemma is explored and these people try different ways to to find out who they were uh, or, and or adjust to, you know, the, the, the situation in which they find themselves. So it's, it's, somewhat, it's a somewhat existential play. I rather enjoy it. <laughs> it's called A Body of Water. 
And I should mention that I had the opportunity when you were starting to write Body of Order, you mm-hmm. wrote that first scene in the midst of – you were actually in the midst of finishing the Scottish, um, play, yeah. the Scottish play. And that first scene kind of came and then you worked – it came separately. So it's very odd. I feel like I've been waiting on a cliffhanger for a while. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, um, um, a Body of Water, of course, is the play that the, uh, the Guthrie Theater is going to do and that will open in uh, June 15th uh, in Minneapolis. Um, but um, uh, I wrote the first scene. I think I wrote – I read the first scene to, to, to the people at the O'Neill. That's right. But I had written by that time I think the first two scenes. Ultimately, it would be five scenes. But uh, I, I, I really – after two scenes, I gave it to somebody and she said, I think you've – I think you've written yourself into a corner. I think there's no way to end this play. You know, there's no way to, to come out of this logically. Uh, because what happens is they start hearing stories from this young woman who doesn't have a memory problem. And so she tells them a, a, a rather horrifying story about who they are and, 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 and what's going on. But the next day, she is a, I also call it a play in three days. The next day she comes back, she tells them a totally different story. <laughs> and the next time they see her, she tells them a, a different story still. So it's uh, uh, in, in a way what happened to that couple happens to the audience as they watch the play. Because we lose our sense of bearings as well. You know, so. And we talked a moment ago about you've become more prolific since you've moved to New York, two plays a year rather than one. Do you have trouble getting these plays produced? Uh, you made a statement once. I'm taking this partially out of context. Uh, in an Some interview, bitter you, statement I yeah, made in a drunken state, that, I'm uh, sure. Uh, about commercial pressures, a play needs to be commercial and all that. And you wrote, plays don't go, uh, you said, according to this interview, plays don't go to Broadway. Long ago, it got turned into a real estate scam in a theme park. That's simply what it is now. Uh, do you remember saying that? That's the kindest thing I ever said about yeah. Broadway. No. <laughs> That's the kindest. I love Broadway. I really do. But, but uh, you know, the, I think we all are all familiar with uh, what real, uh, real estate prices in Manhattan are these days. Well, you know, I think for the kinds of properties that Broadway theaters are, it's been that way for a long time. And um, – you know, uh, so the rents are very high, and any producer who works uh, in a Broadway house uh, has a very high nut to uh, to make every month, every week. Um, a lot of salaries to pay. A lot of salaries to pay. Uh, it, it's just extremely expensive. So um, they have to do whatever plays they think are really going to return, you know, uh, uh, sufficient uh, money. And most Broadway plays uh, don't make their money back. Um, we're even getting to a, a time in New York theater when most uh, off-Broadway plays are not making their money back. So it's 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 really a very tough time. Uh, and the plays that sort of get shortest shrift in a situation like that when there's all this financial pressure for some reason tend to be dramatic uh, efforts by American playwrights. You know, if you're a British playwright, they'll – you know, producers tend to think there's a better chance that they that they can run with a play. Um, you know, see Michael Frayn, for example. He, he, uh, Copenhagen, uh, Democracy, these things are mm-hmm. coming on to Broadway. Um, Pillow Man right now, Martin McDonough is at the booth. Um, and these are fine plays, but Americans also write fine plays. I just think the producers tend to think that they're, they have a little bit more of an insurance policy or security blanket if they're doing, doing a British or Irish play um, or a comedy. Or a musical, you know, or or a, a play with some sort of gimmick in it, you know, or a play that's that wrapped around a celebrity. Um, you know, there, there are a number of different formulas, but the one formula that isn't really much of a formula for success, and I think in the minds of most producers, is um, uh, American playwright with uh, you know straight dramatic piece. You know, so um, 
Um, as I say, I was probably miffed at the time. But at the uh, same time, you are you are a playwright who has had enormous success with multiple productions at regional theaters around mm-hmm. the country. Yeah, you've you've been able to make a life and a living through through that variety of work. Yeah, I think playwright. You know, I grew up in a very fortunate period. You know, in the 1960s, off Broadway got started, and at the same time, the resident theater around America got started. And as as far as American playwrights are concerned. Both of those are are more important than any, any dreams of Broadway. When Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller were getting started, Broadway was theater. Uh, now there are much, you know, many more theaters uh, across the country, and every playwright's uh, career, almost every playwright's career, is a patchwork of uh, productions. Uh, that you know, it's happening in Orlando, and, and the people in Salt Lake don't know that that happened. And even you Arthur know? Miller's yeah. later plays were were being done initially, and in some cases only in yeah. regional theaters as well. Absolutely. When even, even an Arthur Miller is not able, the not able to be really on Broadway changed. as regularly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Edward Albee uh, couldn't bring in uh, uh, the play he had at Hartford Stage this year, uh, um, and and really and basically, be- and the, the producer said, "We just have lost money in your last four." So we can't do it. And I believe his quote was, well, when did anybody ever expect to make money on an Albi play? <laughs> but that is sort of, you know, the, it's a, it is an interesting uh, conundrum because as a society, I think we want a living theater. We want a dramatic literature that represents our age. Um, economically, it's not happening that it can, can be on our, our, our uh, largest stages anymore very often. You know, so it, it, it has to be somewhere else, but it's got to be someplace. And, uh, or, or we really are going to be shortchanging ourselves tremendously culturally. Um, but it's, you know, I, I feel, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough thing for producers. I feel for them. It's, you know, you know, they know they're cutting their throats if they do certain kinds of plays in big, big houses on Broadway. You know, so, so they don't do it. Well, thankfully, there are many smaller houses that are doing shows like going to St. Ives. I guess we should be sure to mention again, it's at Primary Stages here in New York on East 59th Street, which is a wonderfully modern new theater, a perfect uh, venue. 59 59 East to be member. And it's, I guess the the structure is about a year old or so, so it's Mm -hmm. a nice modern auditorium where... No seat is a bad seat, perfect sight lines, so you can hear every word that's said on stage. Going to St. Ives runs through April 24th, so there's still a couple weeks to catch it at uh, the primary stages here in New York. And we should mm-hmm. be clear also, reminding people that A Body of Water at the Guthrie beginning in June in Minneapolis. Opening June 15th. And uh, the Scottish play at the La Jolla Playhouse in La Jolla, that, California this fall. That opens September 20th. Lee Blessing, thanks very much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you so much. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs and all of the media work and educational work of the American Theatre Wing is available from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>